Welcome back to iBiology, the IBDP Biology Revision Podcast that should not be your only resource. <laughs> Please go listen to Mr. Dunn as well. Uh, although if you want to study along with us, uh, the resources we'll be using as always are the Oxford IB Study Guide, the textbook, and the... Uh, my notes. <laughs> <laughs> um, today we're going to be looking at Unit 2, the beginning specifically, um, looking at the molecules, um, biological molecules, and... Um, enzymes, enzymes, lipids. Ach so, nee, das sind ja. Yeah, it's all it's all molecules. Yeah. Um, technically everything is molecules, but like, <laughs> except for some individual atoms. Let's just get going. Um, so last time I was I was actually referencing this. Um, I was talking about uh, the synthesis of a specific compound, um, and I was confused to why I couldn't find it in the cell biology section. That's because it's actually in this section. It's the synthesis of urea. Basically, in the 18th century, um, they they showed that hey, we can make this without organic, uh, with like, out some uh, without a biological force making it. Um, so in order to prove that cells could come from like yeah, they have to know. come from something. Okay. Yeah. Um, so it can it helped falsify the theory of vitalism, and as we know from TOK. Falsification is what we base science on. Like, if you can prove something wrong, then that no longer exists, and you can never prove anything right. Yay. Um, mm. That's so depressing. We're, just, we're pretty sure that things we are learning are correct, or at least... Um, Unfalsified. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Yeah, or, or more... Ac- well, to be fair, we're still learning oversimplified models. But anyway, moving on. Um, you need. Uh, you do need to know, like, some very basic chemistry like what are atoms what are molecules what are covalent bonds go ahead i don't know any of these i'm just kidding but like (laughs) yeah so the atom is a single particle molecule is a group of two or more held together by bonds um yeah and there's the and if you look on page 17 of the revision guide you can find some examples of molecular diagrams yeah (laughs) (laughs) yeah um otherwise uh so one very basic thing in which we use uh, molecules is metabolism. So metabolism is, I believe, the sum... Our metabolism is the sum of all of the chemical reactions going in our, our body. Um, and the thing is that uh, basically metabolism either works in chains or in circles. Mm-hmm. So either we... Uh, so sometimes the things are reused and sometimes they just go through once and we're good. Um, there, We're going to learn more about metabolism later. Uh, I believe that's going to be hopefully next episode where we're going to be looking at... Well, you know, the episode after that where we're in detail going to be checking out uh, the Krebs cycle mm-hmm. and <laughs> respiration in general. It's very exciting. But for now, all uh, you need to know is that um, reactions can either be anabolic or catabolic. Anabolic being building something up, catabolic being breaking something down. If you're trying to remember it, you can think of catabolic as cutting something in half. Um, hmm. and, and, uh, or also, alternatively, cats are very mean and they have very sharp claws and they break stuff. Sure. <laughs> um, otherwise, um, anabolic reactions are also condensation reactions because you're producing water in the meanwhile. And, ca- uh, and for catabolism, you need hydrolysis reactions, so you need water to split the molecules. We're going to learn about more about that in a second. Um, but first of all, what is water? <laughs> so water, also known as H2O, is made of two hydrogen atoms and one oxygen atom. 
Um, however, the main thing that we need to know about them is that water is polar. Polar meaning that because you, you learn more, you, if you also have chemistry, you learn more about polarity, but all you need to know is basically that Oxygen, for various reasons, you don't need to know the reasons why, likes, like, attracts electrons more than hydrogen does. It's more electronegative. Mm -hmm. So it pulls the electrons more towards itself. Um, meaning that the um, electrons are going to be spending more time along the oxygen than they are along the hydrogen. Mm, which is why... Ah, okay. Which is why the uh, when, we're, when we're drawing them out, we can draw the oxygen as slightly negative and the hydrogen as slightly positive. It's not an ionic bond, which you might remember from, I guess, IGCC or MYP. It's uh, still, it is still covalent. It's just that one part's more negative than the other, it's, which is also called a dipole. <laughs> um, this specifically then leads to hydrogen bonding. Now, not all dipole-dipole bonding is hydrogen bonding, but this one is hydrogen bonding occurs not uh, is not the idea of the bond between the oxygen and the hydrogen in the molecule it's between the dipoles of different molecules you're uh, confused remind me of what is a dipole a dipole is the uh, half charge basically half charge yes basically it's a, it's so it's half charge of what so it's a partial charge specifically um on the because Remember that the that the electrons spend more time with the oxygen, so it's more negative, and because it's not, it doesn't have a full charge. It's not, it's not an ion, mm -hmm. but it does have a half charge because uh, okay. it is, uh, because the electrons are sort of there more, but although it still shares them with the hydrogen. And then what happens with the with the half charges and the dipoles? Because um, they're uh, because they have the half charge, the hydrogens of one. Uh, water molecule are going to be attracted through the oxygens of another. Ah, because plus and minus attract. Exactly, it's kind. Oh, okay. It's kind of like if you have two parts of a, mag a magnet, except mm -hmm. they're not very strong. Uh, not not quite as strong. Yeah. Um, okay, and then there's what kind of bond is between the oxygen and the hydrogen if they get attracted to one another? So between molecules, that's going to be a hydrogen bond. And within a molecule, those are just covalent bonds. Ah, okay, lovely. Alles klar. Okay, so now. Um, this is a common eight-point question. Um, how does this affect us? Why is why are the specific properties of water useful for us as living organisms? So first of all, thermal properties. Because of the hydrogen, uh, because of the hydrogen bonds, it's easier. Uh, the the boiling points and melting points are higher than they are of other other molecules of similar size. Mm. Now, very important. The uh, like things don't uh, things don't when. When water boils, it's not the hydrogen and the oxygen bonds of the molecule itself do not break. Okay. It's still H2O molecules, but uh, just the hydrogen bonds between them break this weaker uh, intermolecular mm -hmm. forces. <laughs> okay. Um, but because the hydrogen bonds, they're relative, they are stronger than other bonds. So, for example, I believe the example that is used is methane, which is actually uh, which I believe is about the same weight. I believe it's 18 as opposed to, I think it's, uh, yeah, no, never mind. It's the exact, uh, it's basically the exact same molecular weight, mm -hmm. methane and hydrogen, uh, methane and water. However, methane has a way lower boiling, uh, boiling point and melting point. Mm -hmm. It's a gas at room temperature, meanwhile mm -hmm. water is not. Mm -hmm. um, so the, re and the reason for that is because of the hydrogen bonds in the water. 
what kind of bonds are uh, in the methane? Um, it's just London forces. Which you don't okay. you don't need to know about that, but it doesn't have any dipoles. It's because remember it's one central carbon surrounded by four hydrogens. Uh huh. Um. Wait, I just remembered. No, methane doesn't have a. <laughs> wait. Yeah, never mind. Ignore what I said earlier. Methane doesn't have the same molecular mass, but it's 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 about the same. Mm-hmm. Um. So, yeah, there's the. Uh, four hydrogens, and because that, it's an even pull in all directions. Mm, okay. Mm-hmm. And there's nothing going on there. Um, so there. Uh, so for one, the um, melting, uh, the melting and boiling points are lower. Uh, the specific heat capacity is also lower. The specific heat capacity is how much energy you need to put in to make some uh, to make something warmer. Ah, uh-huh, okay. So for methane, it's two point two joules per uh, per gram per Celsius uh, per degree Celsius. For water, it's 4.2 joules per gram per so Celsius. So, do you need to put more energy into warming water? Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, again, it's because you Because need... the specific heat, because cap- capacity is higher for um, water. Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that is, and the reason for that is, again, because of the hydrogen bonds. They're, uh-huh. <laughs> this is going to come up a lot. Um, they're going to... Uh, because... They're uh, they're like more close again, and because so remember temperature is the average kinetic energy, mm-hmm. and so if you um, if you like slightly restrained, you're gonna have to put in more energy to move the same amount. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, then the latent heat of vaporization is also different. Latent heat of vaporization means how much energy do we need to make it boil. So like, how much energy do we need to put in to make it split off from everything else and just go uh, evaporate? Evaporate. Yeah, basically. Um, now the reason why is all of this important? Um, well, okay, actually, no, first, there's also the solubility, because, um, you have to, uh, so, if you remember from chemistry, um, salt, table salt, sodium chloride, it's Na plus and Cl minus. Mm-hmm. And when, uh, and the reason why it can split up in water is because there's, uh, because it turns into a sodium ion and a chloride ion. Mm-hmm. And so now the negative parts of the water can surround, crowd around the positive ion. Mm-hmm. And meanwhile, the positive parts of the water, so the hydrogen, can crowd around the negative ion. Uh, okay. And so they're kind of surrounding them and separating them. Mm-hmm. Um, so now, and there's... All, okay, never mind. There's also... <laughs> um, it, uh, it's also cohesive. So they're able to stick to one another. Mm-hmm. And they're adhesive. So they're able to stick to other things. Mm-hmm. The water molecules. Yes, exactly. Because of their dipole. Yes, exactly. Yay. Mm. Now, why is all of this important in real life? So, first of all, uh, so here I actually have... I'm just going to pull up my notes because we specifically went through all of that. Um, So, uh, adherence and coherence. Capillary action. It's basically the idea that if we're pulling pulling it through a tube... um, so for uh, uh, so when the part of the water moves up, then the other uh, water sticking to it wants to move up with it because they're adhesive. Uh, cohesive. No wait. Yeah, cohesive. Cohesive. Yeah. Adhesive is also part of the capillary action, as they're uh, as if the wa- uh, like if the cell walls are charged, for example, they're going to move up on the side, pulling up the other water. For example, if we talk about transport in plants, yes, this is important because yeah. otherwise, water couldn't move through the. Yes. The batteries of the plant, basically. Yeah. Um, its adhesion also means that um, it keeps cell walls moist, which is important, 
because if uh, gases can diffuse in the water and if we want the gases to diffuse across the cell wall, we want it to be moist. Mm -hmm. And the reason why it's moist is because the water sticks to it being adhesive. Um, Now, the specific heat capacity um, helps to... uh, Because remember, we need to put in a lot of energy to make it warm up, which is annoying when you're boiling pasta, but important when you're alive because (laughs) um, it allows us to maintain heat better. So... Because remember, we need to keep our body at a constant temperature, and because we're made mostly out of water, um, it allows us to keep our, our body temperature constant. Then also aquatic conditions. So if you're a fish, and you're reliant on the water, because uh, if you're re- reliant on the water around you to be about the same temperature as you, uh, that th- that way there's no rapid changes in temperature, which are completely going to mess you up. That's why whenever if you ever had a fish and you need to put them in an aquarium. Uh, and you're not just supposed to throw them in like that. You're supposed to put them in a bag with uh, with water, lower them in, let the water around them slowly adjust, and then let them mm-hmm. go. So don't clear fish. Yes. And also coastal regions also have more stable temperatures because they're so close to the uh, water. So in winter, when the water of the ocean is still warm, it kind of still warms yeah. up the land. Basically. Basically. <laughs> um, so... Uh, the heat of vaporization, so the amount of water that it takes to vaporize, uh, the amount of energy it takes to vaporize the water, um, it's used for cooling organisms down. Like if you're uh, if you're sweating, like for example, I'm guessing Matilda is here lifting my weights for some reason. <laughs> um, the uh, that way you're going to get more cooling from it because remember um, the energy taken to vaporize the water is taken from your skin. Yeah, like and from yourself. So you're and you need to put in more energy and more heat to get it to vaporize. So you're getting rid of more heat when you're sweating. Mm-hmm. As so po- always, drink water, kids. Drink water, especially important. when you're sweating. <laughs> um, then the it's uh, also important the idea of the uh, high uh, boiling uh, high boiling point. We have a very wide range of life. So because it's able to, uh, because that way we can still live in many places without just all the water uh, leaving and boiling away. Um, very unfortunate for us. Then the idea that it's a very good solvent. Uh, so it so specifically it dissolves polar and ionic substances and some non-polar. Uh, again, polar being if there's uh, a partial charge because of the dipole. And the so, difference. for example... Wait, it's a good solvent because, for example, if I have salt or something, is that is that a polar thing? It's an ionic molecule. A polar molecule is still covalent, but there is a difference in the charge. In oh, the, okay. uh, not in the charge, but in the... They have a dipole charge, basically. Uh-huh. Um, so we already talked about why that happens. Uh, and it's important because also for the uptake of nutrients. Ah, obviously, that makes sense. Yeah. Um, then, then also in aquatic, uh, in aquatic environments, the water can provide nutrients and gases to the, its mm-hmm. inhabitants. Um, uh, then now the water is also transparent, but the ivy doesn't really care about that. <laughs> um, and, but, but could, you, could you still mention it in like an eight point I question? I believe so. I mean, examiners are supposed to give you, uh, aunt, uh are supposed to give you a point, give you credit if you do mention something that's correct, even if it's not on the mark scheme. Basically, it's so um, uh, organisms can see and also photosynthesis needs to happen in the ocean and light needs to be able to... In the plants. 
And also, um, the water's highest density is at approximately four degrees Celsius. Mm -hmm. uh, this is because when it freezes, it uh, forms a it forms a solid it forms a crystal structure almost mm -hmm. uh, with it stacking. So when at four degrees Celsius, it's not quite solid enough that they will get um, that they will form a structure, and they're still just kind of meshing around with one another. Mm. Mm -hmm. So um, why is this important? Because first of all, um, this allows us to have floating ice, which is the reason why we still have liquid oceans. <laughs> yeah. Because uh, if the ice was solid, if the uh, if the no, if the ice ice is solid, that's part of ice. <laughs> if it was on the bottom, um, then it would cool. Th uh, that it would cool things on the bottom, and so the bo uh, and remember. Um, cool things go down, warm things go up. So if the ice is on top, then it becomes, or then when it becomes warm and it comes to the top, it cools down. So so we kind of have that circulation. Oh. Meanwhile, if it wasn't, then we wouldn't have liquid oceans. Um, and it also allows us to insulate the water below it. So during so if in uh, uh during winter, we st can still have fish because the water below the layer of ice is insulated. Ah, okay. So because of the low density of ice, um. Um, when a sort of water when it freezes, it yeah. the ice can float, and that's also the reason why you shouldn't p uh, freeze things in glass bottles because the water will expand, and your glass bottle will break. Um, <laughs> I believe that is it for water. So yeah, you're going you, you're going to have to know that. That's just the thing. Um, but next up, we need to know about carbohydrates and lipids. Hell yeah. So. First of all, um, looking at carbohydrates. Carbohydrates are only made of carbon, oxygen, and hydrogen. Cool. <laughs> you might be able to tell by the name. Um, so, the idea uh, the idea is that you have monosaccharides, disaccharides, polysaccharides. A saccharide, saccharin, sugar, is a carbohydrate. Mm -hmm. And you have to, uh, so one thing about this unit is that. There, um, the there's the monomers of certain uh, of the four basic ones, and there's the polymers. Monomers mm -hmm. being the basic building blocks. So everything we're going to be making is off of that. Um, for carbohydrates, the monomer is the monosaccharide, mono, single saccharide sugar, mm -hmm. single sugar. Um, so there's ribose, which is a which is a pentose sugar. So pent five, it has five carbons. Mm -hmm. You need to be able to know how to draw it. Um, basically, it takes the form of a ring with an O at the top. So you're going from the oxygen and then you're going around the first carbon. There's a hydrogen and then a uh, hydrogen. Maybe you just look at the diagram on yeah, page, look on page 20. 20 of the IB revision guide. Because it makes little sense, I think, yeah. describing what the structure looks like. Yeah. Um, and so, But basically, you can think of it as that there's always going to be a small branch that goes off with a carbon... And otherwise, the other we we are expecting you to be able to look at a picture of it right now. Yeah. Um, otherwise, uh, there's also hexose sugars. I I don't really know, but we don't really call them that. We just mainly call it glucose, which is kind of the central one that's most common, like humans. But there's also fructose and galactose. They have six carbons. Yes, because hex. I mean, yeah, we don't say hexose sugars, but yeah. Yeah. Also, uh, carbo uh, carbohydrates have a 
approximate um, ratio of 1 to 2 to 1 when it comes to carbon, hydrogen, and oxygen. Mm -hmm. Now, there's... Um, for the uh, glucose, you need to be able to draw it. Um, there's both alpha glucose and beta glucose. Mm -hmm. um, there's also it's specifically alpha D glucose and beta D glucose. Uh, the D has to do with the way it's oriented space. You really don't need to know that. The closest you'll get to having to understand what the D means is if you're in higher level chemistry. Mm. Um, <laughs> so the alpha glucose, the idea is that the hydroxy group, so the OHs, mm -hmm. they go down, down, up, down. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, in the beta, it's up, down, up, down. Ah, okay. Yeah. Um, so that's the basic idea of the uh, monomers. Then the disaccharides, so two uh, sugars. Um, you just need to know what combinations make what. So two glucoses will make a maltose, a glucose and a galactose will make lactose, and glucose and fructose will make sucrose. You have to just remember that, I think. Yeah. I mean, you can logic it out with glucose and galactose making lactose. Mm-hmm. Um, but otherwise, I don't know, fructose, it's more in fruit, and sucrose, that's like the sh standard sugar we have. So an apple is kind of sweet. <laughs> and, um, but yeah, the it's, it's just a double ring. Uh, the way that they form these bonds is using a condensation reaction. Mm-hmm. So what they do is you might notice that there's the hydroxy groups at the ends of uh, uh, that they have. So on the first carbon and the fourth carbon, the carbons are counted um, clockwise from the oxygen. Mm -hmm. So if you now look at a picture of a uh, glucose, you can see that, uh, the first carbon, uh, the first on the first carbon the hydroxy group, and on the fourth carbon the hydroxy group, the OHs they just kind of go up, they go together, and then the carbon. So one, um, again, it's difficult to explain without a diagram, but the hydroxy groups kind of go together. So then there's one oxygen connecting the two between the two carbons and the other OH and the remaining H form together to make water. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, That's, um, what's the process called again? Um, the condensation, condensation reaction. And the opposite of condensation is, is hydrolysis. Hydrolysis. Remember hydrolysis, lys meaning to split, um, hydro water. So we're splitting using water. And condensation, remember if you're condensing something, you're making water. Like, uh, what? For example, ah, if, yeah. if yeah. you have steam condensed somewhere, it's not technically not creating water, but <laughs> water appears much like when you're... It's a byproduct. Yeah, doing a condensation reaction. Um, so that's how you form disaccharide bonds. But that's not quite good enough yet because we also need to know polysaccharides. Poly meaning many. So that's just anything over two. We have one, two, and more. Um, so there's three main ones that you need to know. Um, so one is cellulose. That is a polymer of only beta-glucose. Now comes a part uh, so with the beta glucose because remember it was up down up down which feels a lot more nice and symmetrical mm -hmm. and the structure also reflects that because cellulose just kind of forms one long line because it has to be quite stable and has to give structure well that's kind of the opposite way around because it's so nice and like, it gives it's used to give structure and make yeah, things stable exactly. um, so basically they form the basis of plant cell walls we can't digest it. Yeah. <laughs> um, then starch. 
uh, it's uh, basically the uh, it's a polymer of alpha glucose. Now which start, means uh, which means down that down up down 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 up down exactly. And now the reason why it won't is because the reason why it'll be uh, not so it'll it won't form nice straight lines because uh, the OH groups uh, they start to re- they kind of repel each other, mm-hmm. which in a disaccharide that isn't that bad. But then when you suddenly have more, they suddenly start kind of twisting into various shapes. Well, not a various shapes, a helix and a helix, yeah, it's helix. Meanwhile, the uh, beta because they have these nice even ones, um, they're just going to form pleated sheets, mm-hmm. which is important when we're going to look at. Also, protein structure, where alpha helixes and beta-pleated sheets will become a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but not right now. So right now, you just need to know that starch, it forms a helix. And um, uh, cellulose, it forms just straight lines and sheets. Mm-hmm. Then glycogen, it it's kind of similar to... Um, uh, uh, so, uh, starch, or specific... Uh, so, sp- well, starch is kind of an over... Statement. Take an umbrella term. Yeah, because it has both amylose and amylopectin. Mm-hmm. Amylose is when there's no branches, so when it's just the one helix. Mm-hmm. But amylopectin, or also glycogen, they do have branches. So there, the sixth carbon also forms a bond. So instead of just having two uh, glucose bonded to one another, you suddenly have more. And it starts to form a big molecule, but one where you can easily, quickly release energy. Ah, yeah. Because... Ah, yeah. Our because body of many open ends, kind of. Exactly, because... Um, let's say you're trying to have like little pieces of sticks. What's going to give you more pieces of stick more quickly? One very long straight branch or one branch with like a lot of different uh, twigs cutting off because there you can have many people working at the same time cutting off Mm -hmm. straight pieces of stick. Um, So uh, the um, cellulose, cellulose also forms hydrogen bonds between the layers, which you can see diagrams of on page 21 of the revision guide. Mm-hmm. And I think that's it for polysaccharides and uh, carbohydrates in general. So next we're on to lipids. So specifically there's three main types of lipids. Uh, those being uh, triglycerides, phospholipids and steroids. Now, um, you don't really need to know that much about steroids. Just that they have a similar structure of four fused rings. Rings being, again, carbon rings. Basically, everything we're doing here is with carbon, hydrogen, oxygen. Again, lipids are also only of a carbon, hydrogen, and oxygen. Um, yeah, so steroids, you don't really need to know that much about. But whenever you see a molecular structure and there's rings, um, you can assume those to be lipids, specifically steroids. Then phospholipids, you might remember from two episodes ago, um, as they're uh, part of the membrane structure. Yeah. Uh, and then triglycerides, basically they're made out of a glycerol group and a fatty acid tail. Um, diagrams of this are on page 21. Yes, because yeah. um, again, it's difficult to describe. Mm-hmm. But basically fatty acid tails are just very long carbon chains and they can either be saturated or unsaturated. Um, saturate, uh, saturated ones, they are have... Saturated means that you have the... A maximum possible number of hydrogens. Um, unsaturated means that there must be a carbon double bond somewhere. Now, um, 
The, uh, furthermore, the types of uh, fatty acids can also be monounsaturated or polyunsaturated. Mono meaning that there's only one double bond, poly two or more. Uh, and then there's also cis-unsaturated and trans-unsaturated. Um, cis-unsaturated just means that the two high because when you have the double bond, that means on either side on the, uh, there is going to be a hydrogen missing. So when you have a carbon that has a double bond and the missing hydrogens in quotation marks are on both sides, that's a cis-unsaturated fatty acid because cis on the same side, trans, um, which across, um, is going, uh, the missing hydrogens are on opposite sides. Mm -hmm. um, specifically, cis-unsaturated fatty acids, they cause um, a kink. Because it's unbalanced. Sort exactly, of. because yeah. the... Um, high, uh, you don't need to know this in too much detail if you're not studying chemistry, but basically the hydrogens repel each other mm -hmm. uh, because they want more space and so causing um, it to have a bend, meaning that it, I believe, increases fluidity oh, yeah. because they can't stack together as nicely. Mm, okay, that makes sense. So now, why do we need lipids? Because technically, our, our body works in terms of glucose, right? That's what we at least uh, do when we tend to have, um, when we respire. Um, now, the reason why, so first of all, they store a lot more energy, a lot more efficiently. Lipids. Lipids, yes. Mm -hmm. uh, I believe it was, when you don't consider water, it has twice the energy, but because carbohydrates also need to be stored with water, it is almost six times the energy per gram. Ah, uh, okay, because lipids don't need water. Exactly, and even without the water, it still has twice the energy per gram. Well, um, for uh, then also, um, it can also have secondary roles, um, such as insulation. So, for example, for uh, this for both heat and for electrical insulation. So, for heat, it's uh, because especially for if you think of aquatic animals, they usually have thick layers of blubber, uh, which help them keep warm in the cold water. Mm -hmm. um, but it can also do electrical. We'll be looking again in more detail at this when we look at neurons during unit six. Um, where it helps to pass along the current more efficiently if there's um, insulation about the uh, around the neuron to pass on the electrical current. About the um, energy storage, if I were to run a marathon, would I rather eat like a really fatty Greek yogurt beforehand or like some fancy croissants and pancakes? <laughs> I'm going to be honest, this is kind of out of my knowledge area. <laughs> But if you want quick release of energy, um, that's again, we're about to get that. Um, carbs can be used because uh, it allows for more rapid release of energy. That's why. Why is that? Uh, because especially glycogen and amylopectin, because they're so branched, you can easily get them out. You can uh, easily break them down. And lipids aren't as branched? Um, no, remember, they have the long fatty acid tails. Oh, right. Okay. And even then, you, and they, even then I believe they come... It's uh, basically glucose is the primary respiratory substrate. It's the main thing that we use to respire. Mm. Yeah, okay. Makes um, sense. Meanwhile, uh, lipids aren't, and so I mean I believe actually Mr. Dunn did tell us that that before you run a marathon, um, it's usually apparently a lot of people usually say like eat a lot of starchy food, mm -hmm. and the reason for that remember starch is very long and unbranched, um, because that way that allows for a slow but still constant release of energy. Uh, but then. Ah, yeah, okay, but, but there's two glucose in there and stuff. Exactly, okay. because it's a lot. It's a very long glucose chain. Mm. It's just that it's not broken down yet. Okay. Then another uh, another addition 
Another good thing for fat is also that it works for shock absorption. Basically, your organs aren't going to crash into your skeleton if you have a layer of fat there. <laughs> Makes sense. Um, and then there's also some fat-based hormones, such as um, estrogen, testosterone, and cholesterol. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's also and it also allows for buoyancy because it is uh, less dense. As in, we're floating. Yes, that it allows us to float more. Um, then we also need to know about a BMI. Um, specifically, like the uh, specifically the ranges, what is considered underweight, what's considered normal weight, con- what's considered overweight, what's considered obese. Mm-hmm. Um, really? So, be- uh, so below eighteen point five is considered underweight. Uh, eighteen point five to twenty four point nine normal weight. Twenty five to twenty nine point nine overweight. Thirty or more obese. Oof. So and it's calculated as the mass in kilograms divided by the height of in meters squared. If I were to use like this weird diagram on page the 23, nonogram, yeah, yeah, how um, would I do that? Basically, uh, because uh, you you probably want to Google it um, <laughs> if you don't have it in front of you. Uh, you have the two lines on the side: the mass in kilograms and the height in centimeters cubed, uh, centimeters, um, and then a body mass indexed line in the middle. What you do is that you mark your mass, you mark your weight, uh, you, you mark your height, and then you kind of draw a line through them and see where it intersects. If you want, I can also get you a proper ruler so you don't have to do it with a pen, Matilda. No, 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 I just want to, I just want to estimate it. What's my mass? I am my mass up here, okay. I wait up. Okay, so while she does that. I have like 19, 20-ish. Yeah. 19 um, to 20. I'm not underweight. So yeah, the, the thing is that obviously there's, like, BMI isn't like the only measure for health although obviously there is the uh there is still the strong evidence that it ten it's tense it, sh- it can diagnose problems but you obviously have to know how to use it because that's it's always the thing of like technically bodybuilders are overweight and obese because because muscle weighs more than fat exactly <clears throat> and we don't and that's not considered in there it is just a mass to uh hydration although again you need to be able to yeah know this the nanograms um s- speaking of health risks um, there's uh, also parts of it are um, trans fats and saturated fatty acids. So um, we so trans fats are mostly artificially produced, and they've been shown uh, and they've been shown to linked to coronary heart disease. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then there's the que- and then there's the question also: Are saturated fatty acids good for you or? Bad for, uh, bad for you. They do occur naturally, um, and there has been a positive correlation between it and coronary heart disease. Um, but the thing is that there's also populations that don't fit this. So, for example, I believe yeah, the uh, Maasai of Kenya have a diet of foods that's very rich in them, but they don't have a lot of coronary heart disease. So it could be that it's connected to something else, like the low dietary fiber. Basically, this entire part is just about okay, do we actually know anything? <laughs> because it it's very much about the evaluation of evidence. Especially with things like dietary, it's difficult to control variables. Mm-hmm. Because a lot of the time, I mean, because, you know, the people that are eating fried food five times a week are all probably also less likely to eat a bunch of vegetables. And or, like, go do sports and stuff. Yeah, and that's the thing. Live an active, healthy lifestyle. So it's difficult to isolate variables. So unless you're, like, raising 20 kids on an island and giving them... and feeding 10 of them tomatoes and 10 not it's going to be difficult <laughs> to figure out and even then 10 is a small uh, 20 is a small sample size still wouldn't be reliable science Oof. 
And then also because different people, different bodies. Yeah, science and is difficult. genetics and shit. Science is difficult. But genetics isn't until unit 3. We're ignoring that. Mm-hmm. So that's it mainly for lipids. Again, you just need to know basic structures, what's unsaturation, why, what is their comparison with energy storage when we look at it, or when we look at them compared to carbohydrates, and knowing how to calculate BMI and what ranges are, etc. So... Um, next, amino acids and polypeptides. Now, amino acids. Now, amino acids are the monomers of polypeptides. They're a peptide, or more commonly known as proteins. Yeah. Um, the amino acid is relatively simple in structure. You probably want to look at a diagram again. Um, they have an amine group, so an N with two uh, an N nitrogen with two hydrogens bonded to it. A central carbon with a hydrogen going down, and then on the other side a carboxyl group. So uh, and you and the R group. Yeah, and on the top I was getting there the R group. The R group uh, R isn't an element or anything. It's a, a it's supposed to be variable. Um, technically, there's like hundreds of different ones that you could put there, but in actuality, naturally, only about uh, nineteen says occur, or no, only twenty. Um, in animals and yeah. stuff. So and the difference and plants as well. Oh yeah, right. To any living organisms, about uh, twenty. You're going. To, we're going to be looking at them a bit more when we look at protein production, but for now, things you need to know. Um, so there's a lot of different um, types. So that's why we're able to have types of ami- uh, types of amino acids. Yes, right. exactly. That's why proteins are able to have such a large variety. We're going to get there in a second. Um, but first, uh, peptide bonds. Basically, you need uh, they again they form, th- uh, I believe, through condensation reactions again. Um, peptide bond being the bond between two amino acids. Exactly, yeah. it's the um, nitro uh, the nitrogen bonds directly to the carbon. So the carbon on the right, if you're looking on the diagram on page twenty four, to the nitrogen on the left, they bond the OH of the c- carbon and the H of the nitrogen bond together to form water. We already know uh, we already know the type of reaction this is which is no anabolic it is anabolic as well but it is also a uh, condensation uh, exactly fuck yeah <laughs> so uh, uh, so polypeptide uh, unbranched chain of amino acids uh, it can be very variable it, yeah um and yeah other if they're less than 40 amino acids they're usually called uh, peptides but otherwise you can have a huge variety of them, and yeah, is then a proteome. So, uh, you might be familiar with the genome, but a proteome is all of the proteins produced by a cell of an organism or an organism. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, you can also look at that to I guess identify and things like that. Um, then yeah, this is just kind of the introduction to why we actually care about proteins specifically. Um, their conformation, denaturation, and their functions. Now, their conformations. There's uh, different um, structures. So there's the. Prim- what is a different word for conf- conformation? Like shape. Yeah, the way they're arranged in space. Right. Okay. So different. There are different ways in which a protein can be arranged. Exactly. And there's four layers of structure. So we have the primary structure, the secondary structure, the tertiary structure, and the quaternary structure. Uh, the primary structure is just the order of amino acids. Mm-hmm. Then the secondary structure is the folding of the polypeptide. Um, specifically, it can either be in an alpha helix or in a beta pleated sheet. 
Remember when I said we mm-hmm. come back to that? Um, and then... So that's just... Alpha helix meaning... Um, it's just a coil. Right. And beta sheet is when it's more straight and it goes... Like, it's equal. It, it's a sheet, basically. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Uh, with H bonds between the layers of the beta pleated sheet or in the coils of the alpha helix. Then the tertiary structure is the folding of the polypeptide around itself. So um, basically that one part might connect with another part, might connect with another part. Um, so it gets more and more complex, basically. Exactly. Okay. It can either be... Uh, so this can either include hydrogen bonds, um, hydrophobic and hydrophilic interactions. Hydrophobic meaning that it goes away uh, that it doesn't like water hydrophilic meaning it does like water Mm -hmm. remember from um, the phospholipids then ionic bonds can also form if one part is negative one part is positive or um, covalent bonds can even form specifically disulfide bridges in the tertiary structure exactly okay Mm -hmm. and then finally quaternary is suddenly when we have more than one polypeptide and they're wrapping around each other okay so yeah uh, so, for example, one is hemoglobin, where four chains and uh, and iron and iron atoms come together to make one globular prot- protein that then can transport mm-hmm. oxygen. That's why you need iron to. Uh, that's why when you're like anemic, you can't properly transport um, oh, okay. oxygen because you're deficient in iron because okay. you can't make hemoglobin. So now. But why, uh, But now the question is, what happens when this breaks and why does it break? So that's how we get to denaturation. How the conformations break. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Denaturation um, it can either uh, is basically when the shape of a, a protein changes and thus its function. Mm-hmm. Uh, this can either happen through heat or through pH. Heat is when the bonds, so either the hydrogen bonds, the, uh, in the, uh, the hydrogen bonds uh, or covalent bonds in the tertiary structure, they break down or in the secondary structure even. Uh, meaning that its uh, shape changes and thus it can't do what it was supposed to anymore. The thing is, proteins, uh, the way that proteins work is very much reliant on their shape. Mm-hmm. And so if their shape breaks down, they're gone. An example for this is a fried egg. Yes. That's why uh, That's why when you fry an egg, the uh, the transparent stuff turns white and solid. <laughs> <laughs> Lovely. Egg white. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah. Um um, and also afterwards you can't de-denature it anymore. So it's it's um, final, basically. Yeah, it's, 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 it's permanent because permanent, even when you yeah. cool it down anymore, they're not going to bond in the same ways mm-hmm. again. Uh, and it, this can also happen through pH. Now this one's a bit more difficult to wrap your head around, even though for the one it was just that more heat, more energy breaks the bonds. For this one you have to remember what pH actually means. It's... <laughs> Go ahead. You this might be very helpful for my RA. I was I, about to ask. Is this your no. RA topic? You want to? No, no. Go ahead. Go ahead. Okay. Um, basically, pH is the concentration of H plus or OH minus ions. Mm-hmm. Or actually just the concentration of H plus or in that case, the absence mm-hmm. of OH minus ions or H plus ions. Um, and because they're obviously charged, it's H plus, OH minus. And so that way, um, I mean, if let's say... If you have, a, you could either be bonded with a partial charge to this thing or this thing that has a full charge. And so obviously those hydrogen bonds that rely on dipoles or the ionic bonds or uh, things like that, they're also going to shift around and change when you're, uh, when you suddenly have more positive things or more negative things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hydrogens. Yeah. Hydrogens or hydroxy groups. Okay. 
Mm-hmm. So OH minus or H plus. Okay. So again, this uh, affects the conformation of the protein. And thus it changes, sh- uh, shifts it around, and even if we put it into neutral places again, they're not going to take the same shape in- again. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, on page 25, you can see some egg white and some hydrochloric acid, and like with the cooking, it turns white because it denatures. Mm-hmm. So now, functions of proteins. It's a very common for four-point question. Yeah, like, tell me some different proteins. So, one is, for it usually asks for um, an example, and so an example of what it does, and then um, an example protein. Mm-hmm. So, here it just, it actually just lists um, six ones on page 25 of the uh, practice book, although there are more. So, there's, um, it can be work as an enzyme. So, for example, Rubisco. Uh, so enzymes, remember, they're biological catalysts. They can work by... they Basically, they speed up re- reactions. Mm-hmm. Um, they can be hormones, for example, insulin. Um, they can uh, be used as antibodies, like immunoglobulins. Um, we're going to learn more about antibodies later. Oh, it's an collagenous. Uh, um, then, pi- uh, then it can be a pigment, like rhodopsin, with rhodopsin being the thing that makes your eyes able to perceive light. Um, then structural ones like collagen um, or structural ones like spider silk. Then I also have some even more written down in my notes. For example, for muscle contraction, actin and myosin. Um, then for blood clotting, uh, fibrin. Uh, fibrinogen being the inactive version of it. Uh, transport, hemoglobin. Uh, cell adhesion, you have integrin, which is an integral bro- protein between cells. Um, then membrane transport, you have your pumps. Uh, yeah, I think that's enough. People don't need, like, 50. Packing DNA, you, uh, there's histones, which yeah. you should already know about. Um, no, we haven't talked about And that more yet. can be found on page 94 on the of the textbook. So, uh, yeah, just, like, select a couple ones that you can, that you feel comfortable with and that you feel you can memorize. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. Nice. Um, so, yeah, page 94, there's just a long list that you can just look at and just pick out a couple that make sense to you. And again, some of these you should just already naturally know from other parts of the course. Yeah. Okay. On to so enzymes. No, not quite. Man. I think. Um, okay, I don't think we learn... I don't think they take up a subunit, but they are supposed to be in the first part of the subunit, which we actually kind of skimmed over because we were going to be going into more detail about them. Um, which subunit? Um, the 1.1 nucleic acids so um, yeah nucleic acids Uh, they're basically uh, they're made of carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, nitrogen and phosphorus oh yeah just proteins they can be made out of carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, nitrogen and sometimes sulfur so now um, basically nucleic acids they're used in ATP um, DNA and RNA. So those are some examples of where they're used. Um, and specifically nucleic acids, their mo- monomers are nucleotides, uh, and they're, uh, which you can... I mean, we're going to look more at them in Unit 7, but the basic structure is that they have a phosphate connected to a pentose sugar connected to a base. That base being either adenine, thymine, cytosine, guanine, uracil. Yeah, but that's all things for later. Yeah, but just know that be this... aware that they're also a biological molecule. <laughs> yeah, those are th- so those are the four biologic molecules, and so finally onto enzymes. 
This episode is getting a bit long, but it's just setting up everything we need to know for later. So enzymes, like we just mentioned earlier, is their biological catalyst. So they make reactions quick. Um, now, you might be familiar if you paid attention in 10th grade or 9th grade um, with the lock and key model. Basically, the idea that they're kind of open, uh, that they're open, they're uh, ready to accept anything. Um, something comes in, they break it apart, it's uh, open and now the next thing can come in. Um, specifically being the substrate, the enzyme, then the active site, uh, then it turning into an enzyme substrate complex and the products being released. Now, like almost everything we learn, this is a bit of an oversimplification, and we're going to, and we're here to learn less inaccurate lies, mm-hmm. um, specifically the induced fit model. Mm-hmm. So basically, it's not perf- uh, it doesn't actually fit perfectly, but when it bonds, it does. Hey. So it's kind of imagine like a putty, a and then you like um, like for example, like slime or something like mm-hmm, that, mm-hmm. and then when you stick your hand, and then it like still perfectly fits obviously it's not quite as like well high but but it's kind of like that that okay. when you, when the substrate comes in then it fits in mm-hmm. but it, although it doesn't it isn't just quite as open it's like when you punch your dough yeah and then your fist fits perfectly into your dough exactly um <laughs> so yeah the thing is that they can that uh, these enzymes they can also be not quite deactivated but that there are ways to um, change the shape. Cha- change their sh- not not cha- I mean yeah, changing the shape. That's just denaturing them, but rather to uh, stop them from working. Mm-hmm. Specifically, um, using inhibitors. They're uh, competitive and non-competitive inhibitors. Now I think that if you're standard level, you don't need to know this in too much detail. But the idea is that there is uh, there is the active side and then there's an allosteric side. Mm-hmm. So the active side is basically where the substrate comes in. Now, not competitive inhibitors, they are think uh, they uh, they come into the active side and block it and stop anything else from getting in. So they compete with the substrate. Exactly. Um, if you want to, you can uh, just add in more and more subs. Like it might ask you to, uh, to draw. It might you might be asked to draw or to recognize um, a curve with compa- or substrate compa- uh, substrate. Um, where basically the x-axis is the concentration of the substrate, the y-axis is the the enzyme activity. Mm -hmm. Now, if it goes slowly up, but it still reaches the same maximum point, that's going to be a competitive inhibitor. Because in that case, um, if you have like a hundred pieces of substrate and one competitive inhibitor, Mm -hmm. it doesn't really matter because it's just, or, or yeah, it doesn't really matter because you're just, you have so many enzymes at that, uh, like all the enzymes are being filled, and most of them are being filled by the substrate, anyways. Mm-hmm. Now, wait, let me just get a. Mm. Now, non-competitive inhibitors, and they bind to another side, an allosteric side, and they change the shape of the of the enzyme of the enzyme, meaning it can't accept it anymore. It can't accept the substrate anymore. Exactly. So, for example, if you imagine like a folder. Um, a compa- uh, and you need to file away your stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, the allosteric side is like the back of the folder, mm-hmm. and a, a non-competitive inhibitor would be like taking the back of the folder and bending it around. Mm-hmm. So that way, now you can't file your stuff away anymore, even though there's still nothing in the filing cabinet. Mm-hmm. But it just changes shape, so it can't be used anymore. Now, no matter how much substrate you have, 
there's going to be a limit on that based on uh, if you have non-competitive inhibitors in there. The enzyme activity is going to be limited because... The they're no- broken. Yeah, basically. because you're, uh, Especially because they're not competing for the same site. Mm-hmm. But they're still deactivating them in a way. So, yeah, that's the basic idea between difference between competitive and non-competitive um, inhibitors. And finally, I believe the uh, and I mean we already talked about the denaturing. Mm-hmm. So, actually, okay, yeah. So I guess the factors affecting enzyme activity. Um, basically, the warmer something is, the more there is going to be enzyme activity up until the point where they denature, where there's a sharp drop. Because enzymes denature. Yes, because they're proteins, they change shape. Blah, blah, blah. We just At a certain about temperature, yeah. Exactly. Uh, one important thing is also to know is that if you cool an enzyme way down and then warm it up, its activity is going to rise again. But if you heat it way up and then cool it back down, that's not going to happen. Because they're denatured. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're going to. So if you have to draw it, you can draw it a kind of a steady, uh, like an increase, low increase, and then steep drop. S- yeah. Um, meanwhile, pH is just a bell curve. Because their enzymes and en- different enzymes work best at different pHs. Yes, because um, they have an optimal pH. Yeah. Um, so, for example, the in your uh, in your stomach, they're going to work at a different pH than in your mouth. Mm-hmm. Um, substrate concentration it uh, increases up to a point where it starts flattening off, just because at that point all the enzymes are already busy. Mm-hmm. It's not gonna help if you're doing more things if you want to visualize this it's on page 27 of the revision guide yes so um now one th- the last thing that i think we need to talk about before we go into yeah um is immobilized enzymes and the production of lactose free milk um immobilized and uh, so immobilized enzymes they basically they can uh help do uh they can help you do more things so immobilized basically means that it's it's at a diff- distinct point. They're just floating around. So again, the revision guides simply list the things. So um, uh, catalysis can- catalyzing can be controlled by adding or removing enzymes without having to like filter it through things. You can mm-hmm. just put them in, put them out. You can have higher enzyme concentrations. They can be reused. Um, the their resistance to denaturation partially because you can have part of the liquid that's like a some page and then part of it's not. Mm-hmm. Um, then, and the products aren't contaminated with enzymes. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's different ways that you can immobilize them. Sometimes you can, you can attach them to surface such as glass using the wonderful word of adsorption, mm. which almost which everyone comes across the first time is like that can't be a word. No, it is. It just means sticking to a surface adsorption rather than absorption, which is taking it in. Mm-hmm. Um, entrapment in a membrane or gel, or just um, bonding enzymes together into particles, ag- aggregating them. Um, and then finally, one example that has sometimes asked for is lactose-free milk. Why do we want... Uh, so, because lactase... And one important thing about enzymes is that you can usually tell what they're for if they're breaking things down. So, lactose is broken down by lactase. Enzymes generally have ASE yeah. at the end. Exactly. And sugars or gluco- um, carbohydrates generally and have OSE. Yeah, so for and then maltose is broken down by maltase. Now, pop quiz: Why is there no glucase? Uh, because the good, uh, glucose can't be broken down by anything. No, it's already a monomer. All right. Yeah. Obviously. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, ah, so it can't be made any smaller. Yeah. Can you break down glucose into its like individual bestandteile? Yes, you, you could. I mean, that's basically what we do in respiration. Ah, right. Yeah, we do. Yeah. <laughs> oh. Nice, might. <laughs> okay, so uh, reasons why we might want to um, use lactase to make lactose into glucose and galactose rather than just um, keeping the cow titty juice as it is. Um, so some people are lactose intolerant, and if they still want to drink dairy milk, then they uh, then you they're need unethical. Then you need to <laughs> break it down. You were the one who said it, not me. Um, <laughs> then you need to go into uh, Make it into, uh, then you're going to need to have it be lactose reduced. Because if people are unto- uh, lactose intolerant, they intolerant, they can't digest lactose. Lactose. Then also, um, galactose and glucose are sweeter. So, for example, if you want to make a, uh, if you want to make sweet food, you can, uh, you don't have to add as much sugar, which is also going to look great on your labels. Which is why you why you use lactose free milk. Yeah. Okay. Um, mm-hmm. Then uh, it's also uh, it also makes creamier textures, hmm. and then it's uh, and you can also make a yogurt and cheese more quickly, um, if because bacteria ferment them more quickly than they would with lactose because the lactose needs to be broken down first if they want to. Yeah. Sweet. Okay, and now in this almost hour long episode. Oh my god. <laughs> uh, that hopefully summed up uh, everything. Of molecular biology no. part one. <laughs> yeah, b- there's going to be two more episodes where, uh, sorry to any standard level students, where we're just going to straight up look at the high level content of nucleic acids, respiration, and photosynthesis. <laughs> yeah. So I guess until next time. Bye. Bye. <laughs>